Hello, everyone. Welcome to the True Path Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook at the True Path Podcast. So today we're in session four of our study in 1 Peter, and we'll be discussing chapter two, verses one through 10. So if any of you have a background in construction or you've ever taken part in any sort of building project, you know how easily mistakes can happen. I think the most well-known construction mistake would have to be the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy. This well-known bell tower began at the end of began construction at the end of the 12th century, and that signature lean happened because the builders made the foundation too shallow. They didn't calculate the softness of the ground, and as years went by, the ground beneath the tower kept sinking, and so the lean kept getting worse. It went from an initial lean of 0.2 degrees to 5.5 degrees. So in 1990, engineers tried to fix it by leveling the ground underneath it, but that didn't last. So they tried to fix it again in 2008. And so now they're just hoping that that fix will last. Well, in today's passage, we're going to discover that God is also engaging in a construction project, but his building is made of living stones and the foundation, it will never be moved or shaken because it is the perfect foundation. It is Jesus Christ. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 in the CSB. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter begins in chapter two with the word therefore, which refers back to the end of chapter one that said, you have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. Because we've been born again by placing our faith and trust in Jesus, we now live according to a different standard. We now live according to the word of God. So Peter's letting us know what this standard of living should look like. We should rid ourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Now, the word rid from the Greek means to put off, to put aside, or to put away. We are supposed to put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, all evil, envy, and slander. But why should we rid ourselves of these particular traits? Well, I believe Peter is pointing out these negative character traits in particular because they relate to our relationships with others. You see, as children of God, he not only has a plan for us as individuals, but God has a plan for us collectively. He has a plan for us as a community, 
a community of believers, the family of God. And he's going to describe what that plan is in verses 5 through 9. He wants to form us into a spiritual house, a holy nation. And in order to fulfill that plan, we must get rid of the sins that cause divisiveness among believers, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. We must make a decisive break from these things if we're to become the people for his possession that he wants us to be, as he mentions in verse 9. And we can become the people that God wants us to be if we, as verse 2 says, desire the pure milk of God's word like newborn infants so that by it we may grow up into our salvation. We get rid of negative traits by adopting positive ones, immersing ourselves into God's word. The word desire in the original Greek means to long for, to yearn, to deeply desire. We are to crave God's word just like a newborn baby craves milk. Interesting that Peter uses this analogy because what are the characteristics of a newborn? Well, there's no deceit, no malice, envy, or hypocrisy in them, is there? Their motives are pure and unadulterated. And if you've ever been around a hungry baby, you know, when they want milk, they let you know. They are completely focused on that and nothing else will satisfy. And babies need to be continually fed milk or they'll become weak and underdeveloped. It is the milk that brings them nourishment. It is the milk that sustains and satisfies them. And in the same respect, the word of God, that's what brings strength to us, that nourishes our souls and sustains and satisfies us spiritually. We should long and yearn for God's word the same way a baby longs to be fed because it helps us to grow up in our salvation, according to verse 2 which means we become more mature in our faith and in our relationship with Jesus. Now, what's interesting is the fact that at some point, that newborn baby will reach the end of her growth. I mean, humans do stop growing when they reach adulthood. But our spiritual bodies, they can continue to grow until we go to be with Jesus. And this is such an encouraging news, I believe, because, I mean, when we're babies, we're cute and adorable and When we reach childhood and young adulthood, we're beautiful and handsome. Then middle age hits and we begin to wonder where all that gray hair came from and why there's a new wrinkle on my face every time I look in the mirror. And instead of growing, we're now shrinking. But guess what? That may be the case for us outwardly, but it doesn't have to be the case for us inwardly. The beautiful thing about walking with Jesus is there's always room to grow. There's always something new to learn, new to experience. Age is not an issue for God, and it certainly will not stop him from actively working in our lives. Let's just make sure that age isn't an issue for us either. I mean, the only thing preventing our continual growth spiritually is our lack of desire to seek God through his word. Verse 3 says, If you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, Peter's quoting from Psalm 34, 8 here. So not to overuse the baby milk analogy, but babies crave only milk, not coffee, not tea, not even water, because they've tasted it and they know how good it is. Have you tasted the Lord's goodness lately? Have you experienced the Lord's goodness in a personal way? Well, if we're saved children of God, we certainly have. I mean, we know what it was like to at one time be dead in our trespasses and sin and made alive because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins. 
Before we were saved, we were headed for hell. And now we're headed for heaven. And having tasted that goodness, that goodness from God to us, people who don't deserve it, that should motivate us to want more. Now verse 4 and 5 go on to say, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in verse 4, Jesus is portrayed as a living stone. Jesus is life and gives life. John 1.4 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And John 5.26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. As creator, Jesus gives life to all humankind, but on a much deeper level as Christians, we derive our spiritual life from him. Therefore, we too become living stones in a spiritual house that Jesus is building. Scholars believe Peter could very well be remembering a past conversation with Jesus here, in which Jesus tells Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Jesus is building his church, and it is not a physical building, but a building made of people who have surrendered their lives to Christ's lordship. Now, we have to place ourselves in the position of a New Testament believer to truly grasp how monumental this concept is, Because remember the kind of religious system that they were used to. I mean, the original religious order that God established with the Jewish people, it was based on a physical building, the temple. That is where God met with the people. That's where the people worshipped and offered sacrifices to God to atone for their sins. The priests were the mediators between them and God. It was the priests who brought in the sacrifices and led the religious ordinances. And this was the system that the Jewish people had been following, except during the exile, for over 900 years. But now Jesus has come, and he's offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, once and for all. He brought in a new system. The temple is now a spiritual building, not made with literal stones, but living stones, Christians. And so we must understand how revolutionary a concept this was to them. And it might explain why Peter says the living stone was rejected by people. And in verse 7, the stones the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There were many who believed that Jesus was usurping and destroying the traditional religious order, God's established order. And so they could not or would not accept him. However, what these people or builders from the text refuse to acknowledge is what Peter, Jesus says himself in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. So the entire religious order that God established in the Old Testament was all leading to Jesus. Everything humans needed with the old system was fulfilled in Christ. The need for the temple where people could go and meet with God. Now we are the temple and we can meet with God personally anytime, anywhere because Jesus lives within the hearts of Christians. The need for people to bring sacrifices to the priest to offer to God, to make amends for their sins. That was fulfilled in Christ when he gave himself as the sacrifice. We are the holy priesthood now, according to verse 5. And the spiritual sacrifices that we offer are not for our salvation. Only Jesus could do that. 
But our sacrifices are obedience to his word, our praise. According to Romans 12, 1, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our true act of worship. So Jesus wasn't usurping or destroying anything. He was the perfect fulfillment of everything that God had already planned. And his plan was not only to bring individuals to salvation, but to help them to grow in spiritual and godly wisdom, and for that growth to build up his church. His plan is not for his children to live isolated from one another, but together as a family, as a house. As verse 9 tells us, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his possession. But why? I mean, why is it so important to God that believers be unified? I mean, why does Jesus want to build us up into a house, a nation, and a people? Well, verse 9 tells us, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God wants us to be one nation, one church, one people, because it brings him praise. I mean, think for a moment about the impact of one person praising the Lord compared to 1,000 or 1 million. I mean, not that you can't bring praise and glory to the Lord alone in your room, but when we join together as a unified group, as scripture tells us, not even hell can prevail against it. 1 Timothy 3.15 also says that God's household is the pillar and foundation for the truth. God builds us into a unified group of believers called the church in order to defeat the advancement of Satan, to stand on and proclaim the truths of God, and to proclaim to the world his goodness. No wonder the unified church is so vitally important to him. But in order for this building to function the way it's intended to, it must have the proper foundation. Verses 6 through 8 say, For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. Before the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. So Peter's quoting Isaiah 28, 16 here. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Now, I did a little research on cornerstones, and I discovered that originally a cornerstone was the first stone set in the construction of a foundation, and all the other stones in the building were set in reference to this stone. The cornerstone determined the position of the entire structure. It oriented a building in a specific direction. It was the stone the entire structure relied on to remain upright. That's why Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, of our faith. And this is a sad commentary, I think. The fact that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I mean, if anyone should have recognized and acknowledged the cornerstone of a building, it would have been the builders. I mean, who better to know the cornerstone than the builders, right? But they didn't. They rejected it. The scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the religious leaders, it was their job to build up the Jewish people, to teach them about the ways of God and the salvation that Messiah would bring. They knew the scriptures. They knew the prophecies. 
So if anyone should have acknowledged and recognized Jesus as Messiah, it should have been them. But they rejected him. They missed him. Because as Matthew 23 tells us, they were too focused on following the oral traditions of the law and too filled with self-importance because of their works. In other words, they were too focused on the program, not the person. May we not make the same mistake, being overly focused on the doing of it, the works, that we miss the relationship. I mean, that's really what Jesus is after, a relationship. So the good that we do should come from devotion, not duty. And it's important to note that the fact that people rejected him still did not deter him from fulfilling his purpose. Jesus is the foundation of the Christian faith and the only way to be saved, no matter what people believe or disbelieve about him. And if we are to be like Christ, then should it matter if we too are rejected by people? Because if we, as we are becoming increasingly aware, our culture is rejecting Christianity, and it rejects those who hold a godly worldview. And it can be difficult. It can be painful when people reject us. But that doesn't change who we are. We are a royal priesthood and chosen by God. We are citizens of heaven and heirs of God. And if we share in Christ's sufferings, then we will also share in his glory, according to Romans 8:17. So no, it doesn't matter if people reject us, because God hasn't and never will. So it appears from the text that human beings have two choices, and only two choices. They can choose salvation through Christ by accepting his crucifixion and resurrection and inviting Jesus into their lives, accepting him as the cornerstone of their faith. Or for those who disobey the word, Jesus becomes a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over, according to verse 8. At some point, every person will in one way or another have to contend with Jesus, either as their cornerstone or their stumbling stone. One commentator says this is a stark warning that those who do not recognize Jesus as their Savior will one day face him as their judge. So let's make sure we're on the right side of this. Let's make sure we're on the right side of things and that we're sharing the good news of the gospel with our friends and family. Verses 9 and 10 close by saying, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is such an encouragement to us. I mean, you and I have a place in God's kingdom. We are chosen for something so special and significant. We have been called out of darkness of living without Jesus into the light of living with Jesus. And now, because of God's great mercy, we are his people. In Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6, after Moses led the Jews out of Egypt, he went up on Mount Sinai and God told Moses that the Jewish people would be his holy nation. They were chosen by God to represent him to the world. God was going to display himself through them. Now, Peter calls us Christians a holy nation. We are now God's chosen people through Christ. God now displays himself to the world through us, his unified church. One of my commentaries brings up a good point worth mentioning here. It says, unity 
doesn't eliminate diversity. Not all children in a family are alike, nor are all stones in a building identical. It's the diversity that gives a building its beauty. Unison is nice, but harmony is better. St. Augustine once said, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And I believe that's the amazing thing about God. I mean, he can bring people from all walks of life, from different ages, nationalities, and languages, and join them together under one banner, the banner of Christ. And that there is more than one role to play as God's chosen people. I mean, just like a building has many different working parts and each part is important, so it is with the living stones of God's church. We each have our own unique function in God's house, and it's important and it's valuable. I mean, imagine the devastation that a tiny leak in a small pipe hidden underground can cause to a house. Sometimes the small and unseen are the most pivotal. You must never underestimate the value of what you contribute to the cause of Christ. And so that leads us to this week's challenge. Are we contributing to the building up of God's house? Are we proclaiming the praises of God? Or do we hide our faith, fearful of pushback or rejection? May we be bold in our faith and brave enough to proclaim the goodness of God to the world. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.